This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested, now playing. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. Lately, I have been meditating quite a bit on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, particularly two sections of it. One is verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And the second portion is verses 17 through 18, which say this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the thing but to the things that are unseen why these verses well first because of the unsettling times in which we're all living but not only that it's also because those passages are a good reminder all the time that in the midst of any crisis or any period of suffering large or small Jesus Christ is our life and our hope and as my next guest says when any kind of calamity strikes we can count on God not because we feel close to him all the time but because he remains close to us so we'll be talking about this today with Dr. Harold Sankbile he's a former pastor of 31 years. He served as Associate Professor of Ministry and Mission at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And since 2008, he has served as Executive Director for Spiritual Care for Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. He's out with a wonderful new book called Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley. Dr. Senkbile, it's so great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. What a joy to be back with you, Janet. Thank you. Well, calamity does seem to be on many people's minds right now. How do you think we ought to approach this whole issue of calamity from a biblical point of view? Well, I think the first thing is not to shrink from it. Uh, Christians are not afraid of reality because they know uh, they have a Lord who himself endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Uh, so we can take our reality straight. We don't have to uh, uh, run the other way. So um, this is a perplexing thing, of course, not a comfortable thing. And uh, what we've all endured uh, all around the world, actually, in the last uh, three, four months has kind of got our attention, I think, yes. uh, about what's really important. Yes. Do you have any particular observations about this time period in particular being, as it were, a a more intense time of calamity for many people? Yes. Well, I'd say this. It's a very small book, by the way, uh, kind of a devotional book and easily accessible. Um, In there, I I, I make the point that calamities come in different sizes and shapes, and maybe uh, the lesson that we can learn from the broader uh, corporate uh, health um, and pandemic and, and, and all the disruption we're experiencing currently in America and around the world um, does help us to see, get a clearer view of, uh, of where the roots and, and the basis of our faith is found, not in our external circumstances, certainly, but in the Word of God, and particularly uh, the Word of God made flesh, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and so our anchor holds firm uh, within the veil, as the old uh, hymn says, 
uh, no matter what's going on around us. Yeah, I love that hymn. You know, you talk about faith, which is obvious. We have to talk about our faith in Christ when we're looking at whatever is going on in our lives from, you know, in terms of calamity. But you point out when, when we're faithless, Christ is our faithfulness. And I think a really important point that you have made here is that our faith is not in our feelings. Our faith is in the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ. When you are putting that truth into practice in your Christian life, how do you move people from the mindset that your feelings really aren't, you know, equitable with your faith? You're really Mm -hmm. trusting in Christ, someone outside of you to be faithful Mm -hmm. during times when you may feel that your faith is being shaken. Well, of course, that is a that is an issue because uh, you know faith, as we think about it, and it does have a sensational or an experiential dimension, and there is a feeling aspect to it. But the reality is, Janet, our, our feelings are going up and down all the time, and and uh, so you can't really count on them. <clears throat> In fact, uh, some um, scientists even point out that our bodies, because they're responsive uh, to the tides and and everything else, uh, they, uh, our emotions are in a constant state of, state of flux. Yeah. Uh, probably the best way I know of to address this is to look at uh, the disciples' experience on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 8, uh, where they were there, scared silly. Uh, they thought the boat was going down, and here's Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. <laughs> and then they shook him awake. They said, Lord, don't you care uh, if we're drowning? And um, he, uh, of course, stilled the storm, but he also uh, gently chided them. He says, you of little faith. Right. And then just a few chapters later, a similar incident with Peter, um, who uh, saw Jesus coming across the waves, and he was uh, alarmed, thinking he'd seen a ghost. And, and Jesus called him. He says, if it's you, Lord, uh, ask me to come to you. So he said, yes, come here. And so he stepped out, first one step, and then the other. He began to sink when he saw the waves. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him, and again, he called him, you of little faith. So I think that's a good uh, lesson for us all. Um, The smallness of faith is a very human experience, because our faith sometimes is very, very weak. But really what saved the disciples, what saved Peter, was Jesus. He's strong (laughs) to save, even though our faith may be weak. So our faith has to be rooted in something outside of ourselves, not in faith itself, but in the object of faith, namely the Lord Jesus. Right. So don't always look at your own faith and say, it's too small, I need more of it. That seems like a really poor way to try to solve the problem. It never increases your faith when you talk about how small it is, unless you're calling out, Lord, increase my faith. That's also a biblical concept. Exactly. I believe, help my unbelief. Yes. Right. It's a scriptural prayer. Exactly. So when you say something here about misery, I think this is a really important point that you've made because you cite Deuteronomy 32:39 in saying that all misery comes from God's gracious hand. Now that sounds offensive probably to a lot of modern ears because people want to never blame God for anything that's going on that's terrible and he's certainly not the author of sin. But what about this issue of misery and how we should see it the way God sees it in terms of its purposes and also its origin? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's it. Uh, You know, uh, all pain, for example, we can think of instances of pain that that are really healing. Uh, If we're we're severely injured, the doctor sometimes has to inflict pain in order to to bring healing to our bodies. And uh, so subjectively, the experiences of life are like that. Uh, Sometimes they can be very, very miserable, 
but you know, as as uh, Job said to his wife, you know, we receive good things from the Lord's hand. Why not also evil things? Yeah. Uh, things that are apparently evil to us have ultimately a good purpose, even though we don't know it at the time, and and they are indeed miserable. Uh, hanging on to Him, uh, they draw us closer to Him, clinging more cl- closely to Him. We find uh, consolation and comfort in the midst of that. We do. The other thing is, that strikes me is when you're talking about crying out because Christ is always our advocate in the midst of whatever we're going through. There's also, as you go along in the Christian life, a recognition, I think, with most of us that whatever misery is in the past, we see it with fresh eyes as God using that as part of our sanctification process. And it, I'm wondering why we never tend to see that in the moment. We only see it you know, after the fact, looking back on that. Oh, Lord, that's what you were using that for. Yeah, well, I have a great friend who says, you know, it's interesting that we, in the midst of distress, we often say, well, why is this horrible thing happening? And yet we forget that any given day there are scores of things, literally scores of things, that, wonderful things that happen, and we never ask, you know, why are these great things happening? True. It's only those difficult things that cause us problems. Um, so it's hard to get the big picture in the midst of that, um, and I think that's uh, really what these incidents of distress do they call us out of ourselves to find our hope and our confidence in Christ our Lord, and then uh, for his sake to find our purpose and direction as we express our love for him and our love for others. Now, that's well said. And, and the issue of affliction is such an important one to address as well, which you do in this book. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Dr. Harold Sankbile, and the name of his book is Christ and Calamity. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, everyone. This is Janet, hoping you had a wonderful Christmas celebrating the birth of our great Savior, Jesus. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. And so as we come to the end of 2021, I just wanted to let you know that my time to speak on Janet Meffer today is ending as well. I've been a nationally syndicated Christian radio host for the past 12 years, including more than six great years hosting this show. Now, I believe the time is right for me to move on to the next thing the Lord has for me to do. The greatest blessing I've ever received in my life is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've been really privileged to help keep you informed on the news and issues of the day and to try to offer you biblical encouragement from a Christ-centered perspective. I want to thank the owners and managers of all the wonderful Christian radio stations who have aired us all these years. I want to thank all our great sponsors as well and the ministries who have made this program possible. And most of all, I want to thank you. You've tuned into this show. You financially supported the ministries you've heard about here. And I know you've prayed for me and sent us so many encouraging emails. Thank you. We truly are a family and I will really miss all of you, but you can still find me at JanetMefford.com. So I just want to encourage you from 2 Timothy 4, no matter what the future holds, I would implore you to keep fighting the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. Thank you again for listening to Janet Mefford today and God bless. From Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine comes American Underdog. 
Undrafted out of college, quarterback Kurt Warner found himself stocking grocery shelves while trying to hold on to his dream to play in the NFL. I have been working for this my entire life. God is going to do something great with you. Based on the true story, American Underdog. Rated PG. Panel guidance suggested. In theaters everywhere now. More information is available at AmericanUnderdogInspires.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. It really is the case that all of us as Christians go through sufferings great and small. You never really know when you're going to be walking into a period of suffering or trial or even a calamity. And many people have been commenting that we're really in the midst of a calamity as a nation right now. Even globally, we're in the midst of a calamity. But we really need to think about it biblically, regardless of what the calamity is. Dr. Harold Sankvile is joining me, and we are so glad to be talking with him about his book, Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley. We were talking a little bit about this issue of crying out, Christ is our advocate, and the fact that the Lord is with us in the midst of all of our suffering and uses it for his glory. One of the things you also point out is that Christ is our comfort, which we certainly know we had a comforter in the Holy Spirit. How do we find joy in suffering, though? Because you've said we can, provided it's wrapped in the suffering of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that's it. Uh, you know, Janet, the problem is we have a hard time distinguishing joy um, from from pleasure. Um, happiness is usually defined in terms of pleasure or lack of distress. Um, but, you know, Jesus uh, said um, that he wanted people to share in his joy. What was his joy? To do the will of his Father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as I quoted earlier, the Hebrews text, um, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, uh, all of its misery and ugliness, uh, scorning its shame and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So clearly the Bible makes that distinction that there can be joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, the letter to the Philippians points that out all over the place, the epistle of joy. You know, and these things counted all joy when these things happened. Notice it's count it all joy. It isn't that it's a pleasurable experience. Yes. And, and we don't, Christians don't have to have a frontal lobotomy and pretend <laughs> There is no pain. There is no misery. We call a spade a spade, and and we can do everything we can possibly do to find relief in the midst of our distress, physical or emotional. Uh, But ultimately, comfort in in the midst of these situations is found, and not when we find uh, a release from the distress or the pressure or or things become uh, wonderful instead of uh, calamitous. Um, but rather, comfort in the Bible means to have uh, a presence with it, to have the, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. Uh, right. Jesus said, when, when I go away, I will send another comforter, uh, like himself, he implied, to be with you. Yes. And uh, so um, to have somebody by our side, uh, namely uh, the Lord Christ himself, who in his own physical body endured everything that any human being could ever endure and more, because he was a sin-bearer for us, uh, and then the promise of, of the Holy Spirit, who, who prays for us even when we can't find words to pray. Um, I, I believe there is genuine comfort. And, but However, I point out in the book, that remember that comfort is not always comfortable, <laughs> meaning sometimes the misery continues. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so chronic pain, for example, may uh, continue, and that's an unfortunate situation here in this fallen world, but the promise is that clinging tightly to our Lord God, 
who has won the victory, looking forward to the ultimate choice that will far outweigh all present sufferings, the Bible says, mm-hmm. uh, we can find uh, strength, not just to grit our teeth and carry on, but to, to find our hope rooted solidly in Him who is the rock of our salvation. Amen. It goes back to that passage, one of the verses I had mentioned from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that, you know, that goes along with James 1, because when we hear, count it all, join my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, the, the second part of that is for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That gives whatever you're going through a purpose and a meaning. And I think for many Christians, when you are walking through something particularly difficult, you're always trying to find why, 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 Lord, and you don't always know. But to produce steadfastness, that that is very important to God that we remain faithful and steadfast as we're going through whatever we're happening, you know, happening to go through in the moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that is indeed a test of faith. So on the one hand, it's a it's a cleansing or refining of, of the impurities that are mingled with our faith. Um, Bible has that picture, but then it is a test of faith. And I, I, I make the point in the book that, you know, these days we're all talking about the importance of testing um, for viral infections um, and, and calamity, distress, uh, problems, suffering. They are a test for faith. And when you test positive for faith, it's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing, but that demonstrates that your hope is fixed where it needs to be. That's good. Sometimes we need to go through those situations to see a little bit more clearly what we um, what we assume is true, but we really don't fully embrace. Yeah, that's right. Well, and as you say, Jesus sometimes calls us to places we'd rather not go. So when we're going back to the Lord's imperative, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, the cross is the way of death. I mean, we basically, back in Jesus' time, if you took up the cross, you were already dead. So when we bear our cross, as you say, Christ is our king. What does that mean exactly when you say it that way, that when I am taking up my cross and I am dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ, how does Christ being my king make a difference? Um, Well, as the Apostle Paul would say, you know, he is our life. You know, you died in Christ and you now are alive in him because you were buried by baptism into his death and raised with him in his resurrection. Uh, So the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Uh, To see that more clearly, uh, that everything that is selfish and sinful and me-centered in me must die. That is an ongoing crucifixion of the the sinful nature. Uh, So that day by day, the new person that I am in Christ Jesus, by faith in him, uh, can uh, arise and live. And that's really my only hope. Uh, so it is a, uh, the way of the cross is the way that leads home. As you said, it's a paradox. Um, um, I mean, Jesus, the, the night of his betrayal in, in the garden, prayed earnestly that the Father would remove the cup of suffering from him. Mm-hmm. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. So he, he did take up the cross that the Father placed upon him, and by his misery and and horrible death. Uh, He conquered sin, death, and hell, and emerged the victor. So uh, that removes the sting uh, of of death itself, and and also helps us to find uh, the tinge of hope and confidence, even 
in the midst of suffering, it becomes strangely, it actually becomes a mark of ownership, hmm. a sign that we belong to him, um, provided that it is, um, as I said, a test of faith, indicating our, our confidence is rooted in Christ and not in ourselves. So okay. um, that cross that we bear is a sign and a seal of our salvation. That's um, right. Uh, Martin Luther once said it, it's like the colors of the court. You, you belong to a certain prince, uh, um, and you wear his, his colors and emblems. Well, the cross is the sign of, of your identity as a Christian that you belong to him. Amen. That's well said. I, I also really liked your point when you were talking about the fact Christ is with us when we are alone, and we certainly know that. But you made the remark that if we want stability, we have to find an anchor outside this turbulent world. And I thought, boy, is that applicable right now. It's, it's always applicable. But especially now when there's so much uncertainty and stress and people are saying, you know, our country's in absolute upheaval. What am I to think? Where, what, where is God taking us? We do need that anchor outside our world. That, that, I just think that was such a brilliant way to say it. You can't find it in this world. It's seeking in Christ. Yeah, otherwise, uh, you know, it's a, to use the analogy of a storm-tossed sea without an anchor, you're just floating around and drifting around and, and very vulnerable in a, in a storm-tossed sea. So uh, having a fixed anchor, having a certain hope, helps us to sail through very stormy seas with an inner calm. And uh, so I guess I, uh, my plea would be that, that in this time of turmoil and distress, that every Christian uh, take their... Um, focus, not away from, and put it away from the turmoil, away from the inner distress, and put it clearly on Christ, his promises, his cross, his resurrection, and then we can uh, um, live as his people and and serve him, and we can be uh, uh, beacons of light in a very dark world. We can be uh, an oasis of calm on a a stormy sea and uh, stormy desert, and and, uh, so we can bring peace to others who are severely distressed, and, and we can demonstrate the mercy and the grace and the compassion to people who find so much injustice and so misery uh, for, for so many reasons. Well, and what a contrast, what a witness it is when you have a Christian in the midst of turmoil, calm and peaceful and full of joy, despite the trials, that is really a witness to the world in which people can come and say, well, how are you so calm and joyful in the midst yeah, of this? And that's the biblical model, isn't it, for witness, you know, be ready at all times to give an answer for the hope. that is in you. And when everything else is hopeless, how can you be hopeful? Tell me about that. And that's our opening. It is. And and in anything that we're going through, we can bring our worries and anxieties to the Lord Jesus. What about Christ as our victory and and focusing on him as the author and finisher of our faith? How does that help you, for example, during times of trial and calamity? Well, it, it says that this won't last forever. Um, you know, um, Jesus uh, told his disciples when when there's great turmoil in the earth and the uh, and, and the sky, uh, when the powers of heaven are shaken, when everything seems to be in distress, when when people are saying, you know, wanting, calling out to the hills to fall on them and, and, and the mountains to cover them, says when these horrible things begin to take place, then look up, mm-hmm. and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is, you know, that Christ is coming back tomorrow. He might, uh, but I do know that every era is, is the is the final stage for the Christian Church, and and therefore maybe this experience is helping us, shaking us up enough to know that 
you know, we have a glorious future ahead, and that gives us confidence right now. We're not waiting for some pie in the sky by and by, but the light of eternity shines brightly in the face of Christ Jesus, and it's reflected in God's people as they live, not for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Wonderful. Christ and calamity. Thank you, Dr. Harold Sankbio. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine, based on the true story of championship-winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested, now playing. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time and no doubt the most attacked book as well. Take, for instance, the famous quote from the French philosopher Voltaire, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. And we'll talk about a false prophecy. But the 66 books that make up the one book we call the Bible are under attack today in various ways, resulting in many people erroneously believing that the Bible is just full of myths or mere moral lessons like Jesus's parables. And of course, we know that isn't so and that the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word. But what kinds of answers can we give to people who ask us about the reliability of scripture? We're going to cover that today with Dr. Harold Sala. He is an author, a Bible teacher and speaker and founder and president of Guidelines International. And today we'll be talking about his book, Can You Trust the Bible? Great question and great to have you here, Dr. Sala. How are you? Well, I'm fine. And I've been looking forward to my opportunity to chat with all of you folks where you are. Well, we were looking forward to it, too. Glad you're here. What what would you say about the extent to which the trustworthiness of God's word is under attack today? How do you see the Bible being under attack right now? Well, the the case for the authority of the Bible is ironclad. You can go to the Bible and you can come away with it and your life will be changed or you can deny it in spite of the tremendous amount of evidence. And subsequently, you're left with very little to give you hope. Right. Yeah, that's right. And yet there are people who will go on the Internet or they'll read some atheist blog or something like that. And they'll say, you know, the Bible's not reliable. It's full of myths. It's full of stories. It's just moral lessons, those sorts of things. Why do people say things like that? (laughs) Well, because they would prefer to ignore the truth of this book that has impacted the lives of people for 2000 years. And I'd tell them, hey, read my book, and then you tell me that you can't believe it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love that. Well, when we start with the uniqueness of the Bible, and there's no doubt that the Bible is unique in human history, what makes it unique? What would you point to? Well, first of all, the Bible answers the tough questions of life, like, who am I? What makes life worth living? What happens when I draw my last breath here? And I'm in beyond uh, the virus or whatever. And so when you face those questions, then you have answers in this book that are ironclad. No other book in the world is in greater demand than the Bible. It outsells others' books by a big margin. Yep. In 1971, astronaut Ed Mitchell went to the moon in Apollo 14. He took with him a Bible, a King James Version, reduced by hundreds of times, and he left it on the moon. I had a letter from a student recently who said, how do I know the Bible is any different than any other book? And he asked, 
Why should I accept the authority of this book as opposed to others' religious books? It's a valid question. (laughs) He wasn't trying to be difficulty. He wanted an answer. And I would tell him, number one, this book tells me about God, who he is, and how I can have a relationship with him. It's the basis of our faith, and it is the Bible that tells us about Jesus' birth. It's the only book that really tells us how to live and answers the tough questions, and it's the key to spiritual growth. No other book in the world is in greater demand than this one. This one outsells all the other books in the world. Absolutely right. You you know, some of the things, though, that you say about the uniqueness of the Bible include uniqueness in what the Bible claims and uniqueness in its message. I mean, this is really true. The, The claims of Jesus Christ are unlike the claims of any other prophet throughout human history. And that alone makes the Bible unique. But how do we know that it's true? When we're looking at saying to somebody, the claims that the Bible makes for itself make it unique, but they also need to be considered because they are valid. They actually are true. Absolutely. There are more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible that exist today. And that is important because We know for a fact that they have not been tampered with and tried to be rewritten. It is the best-selling book in all the world. George Barna says that 93% of all Americans own Bibles, but only a half of those people ever bothered to read it. So subsequently, in this book, we find the answer to the needs of our lives and what makes life worth living. Right. Right. And also, I think this is a really good thing you've pointed out, that the Bible is the official biography of the world's most influential person. I mean, what other book really tells us about Jesus Christ? We we divide time by the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's so significant. So that alone is worth considering the claims of the Bible, right? Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, there are so many copies of Scripture that have endured the test of time, that we, uh, you know, know with with a relative amount of certainty that the book has been passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. Yes. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because when you mentioned that there are more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts, that's no small thing, because when we look at some of the ancient literature that we never question, we don't have anywhere near as many copies of some of these ancient books as we do of the Bible. Why does that matter so much? Well, I think it matters because it tells us that the Bible has been passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. When Sir Walter Scott, who was the British poet, lay dying, he made an urgent request, bring me the book. And there are many books in the library, said somebody who was at his bedside, which book do you want? Impatiently, he replied, there's only one book, the Bible, bring me the book. (laughs) I think the fear of the Bible, inversely, is the barometer of the respect for the power of this book. Yeah. Right. Well, what about people who are hung up on the issue of contradictions? Because I've always kind of laughed at this claim. Usually the people who say the Bible is full of contradictions, when you turn to them and say, can you name one? They never can name one. They just like saying the Bible is full of contradictions. What about that issue and, and how that relates to the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, by and large, if they think there's a contradiction I would like to know, what is the contradiction, and how can this be resolved? For example, archaeology uh, is 
one of the ways that we confirm the authority of Scripture. For example, Catherine Kenyon, who was a British archaeologist, went to Jericho. And in Jericho, she uh, discovered that there were two Jerichos. There was ancient Jericho, and then there was modern Jericho. So Matthew says that Jesus was going out of Jericho. Luke says Jesus was going into Jericho. But until Catherine Kenyon went there, people said, aha, that's a contradiction. It was no contradiction, because the archaeologists discovered that there was a housing boom. And what they did is went outside old Jericho and built a parameter around the city, and that was considered to be new Jericho. Issue resolved. So in far too many cases, people point fingers without really knowing what the score is. And in my book, I give us evidence of why this book speaks to the needs of people today and why it is absolutely trustworthy. Yes. And you know what I find so interesting is how the more time goes along and the more archaeologists discover certain things about the Bible, the more trust we can put into it. I mean, you think about all of the names of people in the Bible that archaeology has confirmed because of what, you know, these archaeologists have found and places like you say, and also, you know, coins and things like that. I mean, as time goes along, archaeology becomes more and more and more of a friend to the Bible. It seems that, you know, there should be enough evidence for people to say, well, wait a minute, there's really uh, a trustworthy claim here in the Bible. We, we keep seeing it everywhere we turn. Oh, there's absolutely no question in this regard. If a person comes with an open mind and considers the evidence, he may walk away not liking what he's read, but he can be certain this has been passed from generation to generation and is what God wants us to know today. Right, And so there, there's so much evidence. There's the manuscript evidence. There are more than 20,000 manuscripts in existence today of this book that we call the Bible. Wonderful. We'll take a short pause. We'll come back with Dr. Harold Sala. Can you trust the Bible? Stay with us on Janet Mefford today. A mother's womb has now become the unsafest place in America, with abortion being the leading cause of death and babies being aborted up to term in some states. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, helping moms choose life. You see, when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today and help save 400 babies by the end of this year? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. And now through a match, your tax-deductible gift is doubled, saving 10 babies' lives. To donate, dial 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words written early in John's Gospel remind us in this Advent season that God sent His Son to be our Lord and Savior. But many Christians in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East have never read those words or the Christmas story in Luke 2. Why? Because they have no access to the Bible. So in this season of giving, please join Bible League in sending God's Word to Bibleist believers around the world for only four $5 or $50 for 10 Bibles, $500 for 100. Call 800-YESWORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. There are those who have been looking for the scripture for a number of years. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. That's 800-YESWORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have with us as well Dr. Harold Sala. He's an author and Bible teacher, founder and president of Guidelines International, and author of the book we're talking about called Can You Trust the Bible? Such good stuff. Many people say that science and the Bible are incompatible, as you know, Dr. Sala. Uh, Darwinists will say this. There's a lot of question out there about creation and whether or not God exists and these sorts of questions. But really, when you look at the history of science, many of the great scientists throughout history were Christians. So how do we address that question with unbelieving friends about science and, and the Bible being incompatible? Well, that's one of the issues that I discussed in my book, uh, scientific evidence. In, 19, or in 1861, the French Academy of Science published a book stating there were 51 facts of science that contradicted the Bible. But today, there's not a scientist in the world who would stand behind one of those facts. <laughs> the Bible is not a textbook on science, but it's accurate in the statements that it makes of the scientific nature. For example, Acts 7.22 says, Moses was schooled in wisdom of the Egyptians, who believed the world was hatched from an egg. Like, it makes the statement, the stars are without number. Jeremiah 33:22 that the world is round, Isaiah 42. The life of all flesh is in the blood. Every time I give <laughs> blood, when my doctor wants some, I say, you know, centuries ago, a book told us that the life of all flesh is in the blood. <laughs> and that's absolutely true. Yeah. Leviticus 17:14. Yeah, that's so, right. Subsequently, when we come with bias, then we sometimes are confused. But if you come with an open mind and you want to know more about the power of this book, you will find it, and it is there in flaming red color, in flaming red uh, covers. Yeah, that's right. That's great. What, what about fulfilled prophecy? This is one of my favorite defenses of the Word of God, because when you look at the statistical likelihood of one man fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's it could only be Jesus. How strong is that argument when you're speaking to people who don't believe the Bible is trustworthy? Well, first of all, I would say, what is the greatest prophecy that we find in this? And I would go back, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In a few days, we're going to celebrate Christmas. So if you go to what the book says, and you accept it with an open mind, you come away with answers to some of those questions. 
Uh, J. Edwin Orr was a real scholar. He had a number of PhDs, and he said there's one God who reveals his word in the Bible, his work in science. And the Bible deals with text, and science deals with facts. But the extension of a text is to interpret it, and the extension of a fact is a theory. And subsequently, there is so much pragmatic evidence in this book that if you come with an open mind, you find answers to it without any question. I went into China for the first time in 1966, and I uh, was entirely with a secular group. And on the last evening there, there was a banquet. And as we were standing to go into the dining room, there's a young man, I would say in his early 20s, approached one of the members of the group and said, do you have a Bible? And he said, well, I have one at home. And the lad said, do you read your Bible? And the, uh, it was a British guy, and he said, no, I don't read my Bible. It's just there in my library. And the young man said, if you have a Bible, why don't you read it? Why don't you read it? And he didn't know what to say. Wow. When I first began going into China and Russia, and at the same time, I took with me all kinds of Bibles, and we gave them to people who had no Bibles. That's the whole story in itself. But subsequently, there is no other book in the world in demand as much as this book that we call the Bible. Excellent. Well, you have referenced the issue of our testimony and the lives who have, you know, that, that have been transformed through the years, people who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they are born again by the Spirit of God, and they have their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. This is a very, very important thing. I mean, certainly we cannot reduce personal testimony, you know, the, the proof of the Bible to personal testimony, but it certainly underscores the reality of what the Bible is saying, and that is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and those who place their faith and trust in him will become new creations. I mean, that that's a very, very strong piece of evidence to see Christians who are really new creations in Jesus Christ and completely different from the world. Well, definitely, but if you're a pragmatist, then you go beyond that, and we look at what has taken place even in my lifetime, how radically we have made discoveries that affirm the authority of this book. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Uh, In my book, I talk about Qumran and the effect of the scrolls that came out of the caves at Qumran and how they simply affirm the authority of Scripture. And to me, that was really very exciting. Uh, on my first trip to Israel, we came up in a half-track on the backside, and now there's a cable car that whisks people to the top of this. But Matsada is a powerful testimony to the authority of God's Word. A Arab lad by the name of Abba, uh, oh, his name slips from mind at the moment, uh, he allegedly went looking for lost sheep in one of the caves at Qumran. Instead, he, he discovered the Isaiah manuscript that had been there for centuries. And subsequently, every Old Testament book has come out of the caves of Qumran, with the exception of the Book of Esther. And those manuscripts that are now at the cave of the shrine in Jerusalem affirm 
the authority of Scripture being passed from generation to generation without being corrupted. It's yes. a powerful testimony, and it's an exciting one, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Very true. You know, once you do accept that the Bible is the Word of God, which for many people, that's their first step toward coming to know the Lord, what do you advise them to do to act on that evidence? Because I know that's something that you do cover in the book as well. Well, first of all, I would say, hey, find a church where you hear God's Word proclaimed and get there and begin to soak up what it's all about. Uh, It's going to be Christmas in a few days. And so we go back and say, look, Centuries ago, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. And forever is a long, long time. It sure is. You know, do you advise people who are just reading the Bible for the first time to start with a particular book of the Bible? I know often the Gospel of John is the one that people recommend, but what do you recommend new, you know, people who are new to the Bible, uh, where should they start reading it? Well, Gospel of John is a good place to start. Or, with the Christmas story, start with Luke. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God endures forever. This is the Christmas season, and it's not Santa Claus and the reindeer, but it's God spoke through the prophets and told them that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child. His name is Jesus Christ. And so he is the reason for Christmas. And subsequently, the authority of Scripture only affirms this and tells us who he is and what he did, but he's still changing lives. Uh, Some time ago, I was in a restaurant, and I couldn't help but overhearing a conversation in the booth next to me. And uh, there was a young man who was a Christian there, and then the others were not Christians, and they were ripping him up about believing this book, the Bible, blah, blah, blah. And so I couldn't stand it no longer. And I turned to them and I said, excuse me, couldn't help but hearing your conversation. Let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that you are right and he is wrong. What has he lost? And faces begin to turn red and they say, oh, I don't know. I says, look, the truth of what he believes has been verified and passed from generation to generation. What he said, he has nothing to lose, and you have everything to lose if you're wrong. So in my book, I also have a section when we get down to the end where I say, okay, pragmatic uh, uh, evidence. What is the truth of Scripture? And so I say there are three possibilities. Number one, you can ignore all of this and just bypass it. Well, it's just an old habit, you know, it's it's just an old thing. Or you can trivialize it. You can deny it, or you can embrace it. And when you embrace it, then God works in our lives. And subsequently, we have a whole different outlook and our lives are entirely different. Very good. Well, the name of the book is Can You Trust the Bible? Dr. Harold Sala with us. And so good to have you here, Dr. Sala. God bless you and thanks for being here. This hour of Janet Meffer today has been brought to you in part by American Underdog from Lionsgate and the team that brought you I Can Only Imagine based on the true story of championship winning quarterback Kurt Warner. American Underdog, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Now playing.